ICU Rounds is a production of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. This is ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an Associate Professor of Surgery and Director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Jeff Guy. Clearly one of the leading causes of death in the trauma patient, certainly the leading cause of early death in trauma patients, is that associated with hemorrhage. And there's been a tremendous amount of effort associated with reducing these early deaths by the development of uh, pre-hospital trauma care systems, improvement in EMS education and EMS delivery systems, the introduction of tourniquets into the pre-hospital and battlefield environment. But there's also been some advances in medications that perhaps could be delivered in the way we uh, transfuse blood and blood products with, of patients who uh, are with a life-threatening hemorrhage. What we're going to discuss today is the role of transamic acid. Uh, there is an article recently that looked at several articles and studies, namely the CRASH studies, that looked at transamic acid. And the idea behind the use of transamic acid is this is a medication that can be administered in the early period following a traumatic injury and that this may uh, reduce the rate of ongoing bleeding and therefore uh, hopefully reduce uh, the early deaths associated with exsanguination, as well as the, the, some of the complications that develop later, perhaps in the, uh, the days, the weeks that follow, due to the effect of hypovolemic shock associated with ongoing bleeding. So we're going to talk about this study that was called, called the CRASH-2 study, and the, and the bibliographical reference for this was in the Lancet uh, back in uh, 2011. And they did the CRASH-2 trial because they wanted to evaluate the impact on uh, the administration of this medication called tranexamic acid on patients who had evidence or at risk of uh, uh, significant hemorrhage, typically within eight hours of injury. And what they showed from that was that there was a significant reduction in what's called all-cause mortality. And basically, you, you don't know what the patient died from. It may have been um, their injury may have been associated with a traumatic brain injury, uh, but people who are making these decisions in real time, may they be on a battlefield or an emergency or casualty department or in an ambulance or helicopter, they don't know why the patient's dying. They just need to know that the patient's dying. And can the administration of this medication, tranexamic acid, improve the outcome? And they did show that there was a relative risk reduction, uh, overall relative risk reduction of 0 0.91. Uh, and it was statistically significant. And by administering this medication, there was no apparent increase in the uh, uh, events of vascular occlusive events. And this is something that you need to be mindful of. There's been uh, other medications that we've tried to look at that have been used to try to uh, stem the tide of ongoing hemorrhage in patients that are bleeding from surgical bleeding or traumatic bleeding, uh, things like uh, recombinant factor 7. And as these things are trialed, one of the things that people are looking for as complications is, okay, well, this stopped bleeding in a particular subset of patients, but it caused all these significant occlusive events or strokes or heart attacks or DVTs or pulmonary emboli in this other group of patients. And so is it helping all patients or is it helping some patients or harming others? And so this particular study kind of wanted to peel back a little bit further as to who potentially benefits from the administration of transexamic acid, uh, and uh, particularly in regards to bleeding, and is it a time-sensitive phenomenon? Should we, you know, somebody comes in six or seven hours after the traumatic injury, uh, do they potentially benefit from the administration of transexamic acid? 
Now, the crash trial was really uh, motivated by the evidence that the administration of transexamic acid, acid reduced bleeding in patients who were undergoing elective surgical uh, procedures. And therefore, the initial hypothesis was that when you gave this drug, that it inhibited the process of fibrinolysis. Now, what happens is, is that as we form clot, we lay down fiber, and that's part of the coagulation cascade. But part of the body's natural response is so that your uh, everything is regulated. There's a counter-regulatory mechanism to everything. So as you're laying down fiber, and you don't want the whole coagulation uh, system, the whole vascular system, to form into a big fibrin cast. And so there's a mechanism that starts breaking down fibrin. And so the initial hypothesis was that by administration of transexamic acid in these patients undergoing uh, bleeding from elective surgical procedures, perhaps that we were inhibiting to some degree the fibrinolytic pathways. And by inhibiting fibrinolysis or the breakdown of clot, that this was leading to improved hemostasis and reduction of bleeding. And interesting, when the authors went back and looked at some of the data from the crash trials, uh, there was really no difference recorded in transfusion requirements between the um, experimental group that received the transexamic acid and the placebo groups. Making things more interesting is that the investigation did not go and actually measure the effects of this drug on uh, fibrinolytic pathways and didn't do any assays to see that, you know, if their hypothesis was that the administration of transexamic acid uh, inhibited fibrinolytic pathways, they made no effort to try to uh, do any laboratory assays to confirm or deny that hypothesis. Perhaps a better term would be to reject that hypothesis. Now, one thing that we said it was interesting is that there was no, no perceived difference in transfusion requirements between the placebo groups and the experimental groups, and it, it seemed that the experimental groups had improved mortality when they were given the transexamic acid. So this started people thinking, well, what are their other possibilities? And if you've listened to this podcast at, at all, you know that there are things that happen to a uh, critically ill or injured person that can result a cascade, and we call it pro-inflammatory cascade. And this gets into the silly expression that I use all the time, it's not the fall that kills you, but the sudden stop. So sometimes if patients who have septic shock, for instance, they'll have a bacterial infection in their lung or their blood or their, their abdominal cavity, this initiates the body's infl inflammation, and this results in, say, septic shock. And so one of the theories put forth was that if we're not seeing a uh, uh, measurable difference in transfusion requirements between those patients who received the transamic acid and those who did, maybe that the effect of survival that we're seeing is related to this is uh, abrogating or decreasing the harmful inflammatory response that's associated with a major injury. You know, you look at the crash uh, trial, the, the authors didn't try to segregate who would receive the transamic acid. And you know, and the difficult there is, is well, how do you know if somebody had, say, a, a pelvic hematoma from a pelvic fracture versus a traumatic brain injury? They're both uh, potentially life-threatening injuries. However, the the uh, open book pelvic fracture is more likely to exsanguinate. Well, the authors didn't really want to dis, dis, uh, discern between those two groups of patients because it was their opinion that the people who are going to be making decisions about to administer the drug don't have the clairvoyance uh, or the ability to say, well, this person's dying of a traumatic brain injury, this person's got an aortic hematoma uh, and is bleeding from an aortic injury. Um, so they didn't really want to segregate, so they looked at all-cause uh, all mortality.
you know, the authors state in their paper, they say the focus on all-cause mortality was appropriate because it is an outcome that matters to patients and one that is not affected by the methodological problem of competing risks. They go on to say, however, the effect of the trial treatment on the biologically relevant outcome could have been diluted by outcomes on which the transamic acid might have little or no effect. In response to these concerns, we undertook an exploratory analysis of the effect of transamic acid on mortality due to bleeding. And it's kind of what this paper here that we're looking at is what is the impact of transamic acid on bleeding or people who present with signs and symptoms of bleeding. And again, you need to kind of get a little bit out of kind of the, the bow tie wearing kind of, you know, I'm going to be really critical about a paper and imagine who is going to be making decisions about the use of this drug or what circumstances you're going to be in. You may be in an MICU and somebody's got a massive GI bleed from esophageal varices or, or uh, from a perforate from an ulcer that's bleeding. Or you may be in the emergency department or a helicopter and somebody's bleeding from major trauma. Um, so you're, you're going to have very little information at that point. And the only thing you're really going to be able to rely on and when you reach for the drug is, is this patient bleeding? What's the severity of the hemorrhage? And the way I've determined that in, in a lot of cases isn't going to be so much on laboratory data, what their hemoglobin concentration is, or uh, what their thromboelastogram looks like, or their PTT, or um, uh, what their PA catheter data looks like. It's going to be this patient's bleeding, this patient's in shock. So how the crash trial was done is they randomly allocated uh, over 20,000 adult trauma patients with or at risk of significant bleeding who uh, were within eight hours of injury, and these patients either received transexamic acid at a loading dose of one gram over 10 minutes, followed by an infusion of one gram over eight hours, or a matching placebo, and they had a 99.6% follow-up. The primary uh, outcome was death in the hospital within four weeks of injury, with cause of death described um, as in the categories of either bleeding, vascular occlusion, such as a myocardial infarction, stroke, or pulmonary embolism, multi-organ failure, head injury, or other. And on the analysis that actually examined the effect of death due to bleeding, they actually broke it down uh, to what are some of the baseline characteristics of these patients when they presented. And one was time from injury to treatment, and they broke this down into patients who presented in less than an hour, patients who presented from one hour to three hours, and those patients who presented in greater than three hours. And that's the time that they were injured to the time they got the transexamic acid. Uh, the severity of hemorrhage, which they assessed based on the systolic blood pressure. And they broke those groups down into a systolic blood pressure of less than 75. Uh, second group was those who had a pressure between 76 and 89. And then the last group was basically those who had a systolic blood pressure of greater than uh, 89 millimeters of mercury or 90. So you can see there that that's kind of a really tight clustering uh, of people who really have some form of uh, hypovolemic shock and even, you know, they're considering the high end as normal. It'd be interesting to see, you know, would you then exclude people who had, say, a, a, a blood pressure of how we break it down to like a blood pressure greater than 110 or 120 people are compensated. And then they looked at GCS. Severe GCSs were considered 3 to 8, moderate 9 to 12, and mild 13 to 15, as well as they broke it down then as a type of injury. Uh, penetrating trauma, uh, blunt uh, plus, and the third group was uh, blunt trauma and uh, combined with penetrating trauma. Now, of all these patients that we presented, there were 3,076 deaths from all causes. And death to bleeding accounted for 1,063 patients, uh, which accounted for 35% of all the deaths. Now, the risk of death due to bleeding was significantly reduced by the administration of the transexamic acid. Uh, uh, 
that's down to 4.9% patients die because of bleeding in the transexamic group versus um, 5.7% in the placebo group. So the relative risk reduction by the administration of transexamic acid in patients who were bleeding was 0.85. Now, if you're, if you're not comfortable or if you're not familiar with the idea of relative risk, relative risk is, you know, placebo, if we took two groups of placebo, it was as good as placebo, the relative risk would be one. Basically, the, the drug had no effect. If the relative risk is less than one, that means the drug is having a positive effect in reducing uh, the mortality associated with that condition. If the relative risk is greater than one, that means the medication or the the, uh, the treatment is increasing the mortality, that you're harming the patient compared to giving just placebo or nothing at all. Now, the authors report that there was no significant effect on the risk of death for the other non-bleeding causes uh, when combined in their data. What's interesting, if you look at their, their paper, the time to treatment, uh, from say the time of injury to the time of treatment of transexamic acid, had significant uh, differences in the relative risk. For those patients who uh, the time of treatment was less than an hour, the relative risk was 0.68. If the patient presented between one and three hours, the relative risk uh, was 0.79. So there was still a benefit in the administration of transesthetic acid in patients who presented from one to three hours compared to the control. That's good. Uh, but if you could give it earlier, say less than an hour, that even had a more beneficial effect. Now, what might be some of the operational considerations of that? Again, as you think, particularly uh, depending on the part of the world in which you're living in, is if you're living in a large metropolitan area, the time to get into an emergency department or a trauma center in less than an hour is, is probably uh, pretty likely. However, if like large parts of the United States, uh, where it may take you know certainly more than an hour to get into an emergency center or a trauma center, what that is... Uh, implying is that we're going to need to perhaps consider giving this medication in a pre-hospital environment, in an ambulance or on a helicopter or on the battlefield. However, the data, and here's what's important, is that the data that demonstrate on this paper that in patients who received the tranexamic acid greater than three hours, there was an increase in the relative risk. In that group, they had a relative risk of 1.44. So after three hours of injury, the administration uh, significantly increased the risk of bleeding, uh, excuse me, increased the risk of death due to bleeding. And so the authors went on to evaluate then is that, you know, for every hour that we uh, delay the administration of transexamic acid, we're increasing the likelihood that a patient may die of bleeding. And they estimated the odds ratio for every hour of delay that passes from the time of injury, the odds ratio is 1.15. Uh, and again, what this means is that your likelihood of death increases 1.15 times. Uh, so again, getting that medication delivered earlier, moving it as what I would call as proximal to the patient as possible, is likely to make the medication more effective and hopefully improve the patient's mortality. And as, again, you've got to be thinking, how am I going to do that? I need to put it perhaps in the hands of EMS providers, uh, whether they be in, on ground ambulances, or helicopters, or medics on the battlefield. The results of this investigation show that timing with the administration of transexamic acid is is extremely relevant in stopping the bleeding. However, that if you wait too long with the use of this medication, it also raises the possibility that late treatment with transexamic, ac transexamic acid might 
increase the risk of bleeding due to death, although there was no evidence of an increase in all-cause mortality in patients treated after three hours in this paper. And what the authors suggest for that is that the patients treated with transexamic acid beyond three hours uh, may have died from bleeding from other, um, or may have died from other non-bleeding causes, what they call competing risks. Nevertheless, the data is still there, and the data suggests that there may be no benefit uh, uh, in um, giving transexamic acid to people who present after three hours. And clearly the data is there to suggest that the earlier we give it, the better the outcome. The authors go on, and this is reading from the paper. They say the apparent increase in the risk of death due to bleeding in patients treated more than three hours after injury is unexpected and cannot be readily explained. It could be a chance finding, uh, and there might be no real biological effect. However, patients in the late phase of trauma can develop thrombotic disseminated intravascular coagulation, and antifibrolytics could be contraindicated in this period. So finally, in conclusion, what they say is that a uh, systemic review of randomized control trials concluded that transexamic acid safely reduces mortality in bleeding trauma patients, and that their data strongly endorses the importance of early administration of transexamic acid in bleeding trauma patients and suggests that trauma systems should be configured to facilitate this recommendation. And this is what we're talking about. Try to design a system in which you're able to get the drug as proximal down to the system as possible in the hands of pre-hospital providers or uh, hospital helicopter providers or emergency departments because this data clearly shows that the earlier you give it, the um, more likely it's going to be beneficial in regards to mortality. Now they go on to say that in patients presenting late, i.e. several hours after injury, the clinician should be more cautious and make an assessment of the individual benefits and risks of this treatment since the drug is likely to be much less effective and possibly even harmful. And again, when you look at the data that's presented in this paper in Lancet uh, in 2011, they showed that after three hours, the administration of transexamic acid had an increase in the odds ratio for mortality. So that's the idea is that give it early, but after three hours, there's not a whole lot of evidence that it's beneficial, and there is evidence that it may be potentially harmful. Well, thanks for listening to IC Rounds. Once again, my name's Jeff Guy. You can reach me on Twitter at iCriticalCare. Make sure you listen to our other podcast, uh, iCriticalCare, which is also a production of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Make sure you check out the website for the Society of Critical Care Medicine at sccm.org. There you're going to find out a lot of information about the Society's current educational offerings as well as access into, if you could make to the Critical Care Congress, you can get Congress on demand. Also a reminder that uh, the uh, Society will be offering a sepsis-related respiratory failure conference on April the 26th and the, uh, April the 27th uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, that'll be uh, held at the Fairmont Copley Hotel Plaza. Uh, the conference will be a multidisciplinary team of experts, and they'll present the latest research and information about sepsis-related respiratory failure, and they'll provide an overview of the new 2012 sepsis guidelines and bundles. Uh, the participants will be able to explore the pathology of sepsis, the methods of diagnosis, treatment and prevention of ventilator-acquired pneumonia, strategies providing nutritional support, ventilator and non-ventilator methods of treating respiratory hypoxemia, and more. And the information for that can be found at wsccm.org. Thanks for downloading, and have a great day. The statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and participants and do not apply an opinion of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, or members.